Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about the early church father, Athanasius, greatly beloved because of his nickname, Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius Against the World. This was a well-deserved nickname. The man went into exile five times during his 45 years as a bishop. Now, if you think you're having troubles at your congregation, let that put it into perspective for you. He lived from the years about 298 to 373, pretty long lived for an ancient guy. He was from Alexandria in Egypt, a major center of Christian learning. And he was famous for a lot of things, not only his five times in exile. He recorded what may be the first official list of the Old and New Testament canon. All those books were in regular use before him, but it's the first time we more or less see them all written down in one place, though honestly he did not include Esther and did include two other uh, books that we no longer generally consider part of the Old Testament, but close enough. He also wrote a really famous biography of St. Anthony of the Desert, this great monk who went off to live alone in the desert and fight the demons. And his most important contribution was his development of Trinitarian doctrine. His most famous line in this regard is, God became human so that humans might become divine. We're going to unpack a great deal of that Trinitarian theology today. Finally, worth knowing, he has a creed named after him, the Athanasian Creed, but he did not actually write it. It came much later and not from his part of the world. Um, He probably wouldn't have objected too strongly. It's very Trinitarian, but it's not him. So that for another time. Now, to start off our discussion today, we are going to look at some highlights from his most famous treatise, which is called On the Incarnation of the Word, and then go from there to look more deeply why the doctrine of the Trinity mattered so much to him. Uh, The crib sheet version of this is that without the doctrine of the Trinity, you don't have salvation. Now, why should that be? Well, first of all, for Athanasius, his major emphasis again and again is on the loving kindness of God in sending his son to save us. The love part is so central to his thinking. I get the feeling that we often assume that like people didn't discover love till the 1960s, but it has been a major theme for a much longer time. And again and again, Athanasius hammers home the point, the reason why the son came to us, the reason why Jesus walked among us, the reason the Trinity is as it is, is because of the love, the incredible, astounding love God has for his creation. So a few highlights from the treatise. One is that the incarnation has two goals. One is to liberate the human body from corruption or death, and the other is to inform the human soul about the true nature of God. You'll notice that Athanasius is interested in both parts of a holistic human being. Again, we think holistic thinking is a new thing. It's not. Athanasius saw clearly that both the body and the soul or mind or spirit needed liberation, and this is what the incarnate Son of God offers, being both things, both body, both soul in one person. Another detail for those of you atonement buffs, he uses the language of paying back debt. That was not just an invention of Anselm many years later. Then Athanasius talks about God's dilemma. This might seem shocking. How can God be in a state of dilemma? But here it is. God created out of nothing creatures that he intended to love and sustain forever in an everlasting fellowship. But the problem is that these creatures turned against him, went into sin. 
Now, God could simply let them go the way of all flesh and deteriorate, rot, die, and be corrupt forever. But for Athanasius, it is not in keeping with God's character to let specially created creatures in God's own image with rational minds and the whole portrait of complexity and interest that is a human being simply to go back to nothingness. That doesn't fit what God's creative intention was in the first place. On the other hand, if God just lets the sin go, he actively endorses the evil in the world. He doesn't attend to the needs of the victims. He doesn't set things right again. This also is not consistent with God's character. And finally, this is not a small one, not to do anything about this would be to let the devil win. And certainly we cannot have the devil win. Now, Athanasius considers some alternatives like why couldn't repentance alone be enough? Athanasius is a really big fan of repentance, but he points out it doesn't actually fix anything that went wrong. It's good, but it can't go back and undo the damage, and it certainly can't restore the damage that has been done to anyone. Another possibility is that God could simply heal by fiat, simply say everything is all right after all. But Athanasius makes the interesting point, fiat works well, That means simply by divine declaration, when you're dealing with something out of nothing. But what if you already have something? What if you already have creatures with established bodies, histories, problems? Simply declaring things better by fiat doesn't correspond to what they really are. So then, how to set these things right? And Athanasius makes an argument that has been, I believe, made before him and continues to be made again. It's one of the most consistently made arguments about the nature of salvation in Christian history, which is that only someone who is truly human can get it to to the heart of human problems and solve them. But only someone who is truly God can be in a position to do something about it and not simply be another creature in need of rescue. So in the Son of God, in Jesus, the incarnate Logos, we have someone truly human, and Athanasius really uh, hammers on this point, who really feels and exists and lives as a human being. He gets sleepy, he gets hungry, he has to walk around, he has all these limitations of the body. And yet, at the same time, he is truly God, so that he can offer a perfect and restored image up to God, and yet, at the same time, as truly human, can truly die thereby offering the sacrifice for sin. But then at the same time, flipping back and forth again, as we see, in dying, he defeats death. So there are all these themes that are drawn up together in Athanasius's treatise on the incarnation of the word. And um, lots of great details will link in the show notes to where you can read the whole thing. Um, One of the most interesting things for me is that he talks about proofs from experience that Christ is truly the victor, but we'll get back to that one later. The most important and famous line from this whole thing, as I mentioned, is that Christ was made man so that we might be made God. That is where Athanasius is heading with this whole thing. Easy to misunderstand this. He doesn't mean like the Trinity is suddenly going to take on new members or something. But this is part of the divine destiny for us to share in a true and everlasting life with God. So, Why was that so hard? That's the question we need to turn to now. You would think that this is, um, uh, you know, all these years later, it seems pretty self-evident, straightforward, happy stuff. But this was something that just blew up. And that's why Athanasius had to become Athanasius against the world. So to figure out why this was so hard, why it was so, in a way, shocking and unnatural and outside of the realm of conceptual possibilities, we need to back up a bit and look at the history of Christian thought up to that point. And for that purpose, we fortunately have an expert, 
namely Paul R. Henlicky, a.k.a. Dad. Thank you, daughter. Uh, nice, nice summary of uh, the life and, time, uh, and, and thought of Athanasius there. Martin Luther's commentary on Athanasius was to say, uh, if Christ is not true God and, not, and only a creature, he is himself in need of a savior. So he cannot have this function, as you were pointing out, of being a savior unless, uh, as Luther famously put it, God himself uh, puts himself on the scale uh, as a weight uh, to counterbalance uh, human ruin in sin and death. Uh, Luther was a big fan of Athanasius for these reasons, that Athanasius's theology, as you pointed out, uh, is really a theology of, of salvation, taking the Christian message, the gospel, as a message of salvation, and then asking the question about who and what God must be if God is indeed the Savior uh, that the gospel claims him uh, to be. But of course, Athanasius was standing in a certain uh, early Christian tradition, and he didn't think his thoughts completely newly, though he did articulate the traditional uh, Christian thinking up to his time in a new way uh, over against a new challenge. I think it's important to notice that Athanasius was a boy during the last great persecution of the early church, the so-called Decian persecution, which went on for a full decade from about the year 300 to about the year 310. And Athanasius mentions that his own formation as a Christian uh, was drawing inspiration for the, from the brave Christians who stood up to the imperial persecution and were willing to risk their lives and to face death bravely rather than to uh, bow down and worship the uh, imperial idol uh, as the persecutors required. Yeah, in the, on the, the incarnation of the word, that is one of the proofs I mentioned he has of the, the reality of Christ's victory, that young people willingly face death as martyrs. And he said, how could they do this without a, a Christ who, who strengthens them? Exactly, and then that's the, the core soteriological, that is salvation-related uh, conviction. As you said several times, God became human in order that human beings might become divine, which is simply a way of saying how Christ's incarnation is the amazing transaction or the amazing economy or the amazing exchange uh, in which Christ, who uh, was rich for our sakes, became poor, as Paul says, as Christ, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, that we might become in him the righteousness of God. Uh, Athanasius has picked up these Pauline themes, that in Christ a great and saving and astonishing exchange takes place, in which God takes on human poverty need in order to bestow divine uh, uh, riches uh, and blessing. And that's the backbone, that's theology of salvation, is the backbone of the courage of the martyrs. So a whole century before Athanasius was the church father Irenaeus. I believe he was actually the first to formulate this thought. The Logos became flesh in order that we who are flesh might become divine, inherited in other words, eternal life. 
So Athanasius stands in this martyrological tradition in which the salvation of God gives human beings the courage to stand up to the bullies and the tyrants, to refuse to render to them veneration or worship, but instead to bravely confess the lordship of the crucified and risen Jesus, which was quite a scandal to the imperial interests. When I first discovered this theology of the incarnation of the words, Sarah, the treatise that you mentioned, uh, I was a graduate student at Union Theological Seminary, and I had a teacher in systematic theology, a kind of a far left-wing Methodist named Tom Driver. He was the Paul Tillich Professor of Theology, And he got in class one day to uh, ranting and raving against Athanasius and the Nicene Creed and turning Jesus into a god. And this was the source of all the anti-Judaism in the Christian tradition. And it led to genocide and how horrible the Gospel of John is and how terrible Athanasius was. Because, Because he wrote the theological blessing of imperialism. What? What? That's exactly what I said in my mind. <laughs> what? And so I went back home and I, I just researched the whole thing and I came back to him and said, Tom, Professor Driver, you're just historically all wrong. You're just totally wrong. Athanasius lived as a martyr. He was exiled five times because the Semiarian emperors didn't want his Trinitarian theology. They wanted a theology in which God the Father was absolutely God and was correlated with the imperial state and the church was subordinate, correlated with the subordinated son. They wanted a synthesis of the church into the state, and their Arian theology reflected that interest. Athanasius, by contrary, uh, contending for uh, the equal deity of the Son with the Father, uh, violated that sense, that subordinationist uh, uh, sense and its political meaning. But I'm kind of getting ahead of the story here. But it is amazing to point out that good Trinitarian theology is also also anti-imperialistic and anti-statist. It's not just this cozy little puppet in the hand of the state, as is so often accused, especially in the early church. You know what? And I'll make an interesting connection for you and Andrew right now living in Tokyo. I've just read a book from the 1950s called The Christian Confrontation. Uh, with state Shinto in wartime Japan. And it was exactly a parallel thing that happened during those years. When the Christians were arrested and interrogated by the Japanese uh, fascist police, their questions were, is the emperor a sinner? Will Christ come again to judge also the emperor? And that was exactly the Aryan theology expressing itself over against the Athanasian Christian theology. I can say more about that at some other time. But let's get back to Athanasius. So he so he was really rooted in Irenaeus and the tradition of the martyrs. 
What became between Irenaeus at the end of the second century and Athanasius at the beginning of the fourth century was the century of origin of Alexandria. Origin was a great genius, uh, the first systematic theologian, and he was also uh, a great biblical scholar. He was also a, a faithful Christian because at the end of his life, he too suffered persecution for his faith in Jesus. And he was imprisoned and tortured, and his health was broken. He didn't actually die as a martyr, but after he was released from prison, his health was so broken, he died soon thereafter. So we can't doubt the sincerity of Origen's uh, Christian faith and, and his loyalty to it. But it was a kind of a peaceful time in which Christianity was expanding rapidly, and Origen himself was the proof of the uh, appeal of Christianity to the intellectuals, to the educated people. Uh, Though Origen himself made fun of the philosophers, he said, you teach ethics, but it's the Christian church which has actually inspired the common people who can't understand your philosophy to live new and um, uh, morally improved lives and so forth. So Origen's a multidimensional figure, but on our particular set of questions about Christology, Origen struggled with the language in the Bible that is spoken to Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved son, this day have I begotten you, actually quoting the psalm text, which was originally spoken to the kings of Israel upon their coronation. Does that mean that Jesus becomes the son of God at his baptism? Well, that was against the faith of the church, no. But does that mean that sometime in eternity, uh, Jesus or the Son came into being, originated? Uh, That seemed to be a very disturbing implication of the language of begottenness. Is Jesus truly subordinate in his being in the sense that he is generated like all the other creatures out of nothing? Well, Origen argued against that, that no, unlike other creatures, Jesus is generated or begotten of his Father before all worlds. And then he struck upon the idea that when we apply a word like begetting to the relationship of Jesus and his Father, we have to qualify it so that we think of it in a fittingly divine way. So it's an eternal begetting. It's not a temporal event that did not once exist and then came into being. That would be, that's how creatures are begotten. But no, if Jesus is the truly the Son of God, then he must be eternally begotten of his eternal Father. So this is the kind of thing we've we've talked about before: is how you have to take ordinary human language because you have no choice as a human but to use ordinary human language, but then imbue it with different meaning and teach about that meaning in order to convey the right sense. Because there's no ordinary sense in which begetting can mean anything other than temporal sequence in the human 
or creaturely animal plant <laughs> experience of beginning. There is always an, an older and a younger in that case. So this is a case of using this language, but transferring its meaning in a new way. Is that a catacrestic metaphor I think we talked about? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that uh, I've said many times that the idea of divine simplicity, which is often attributed to Origen here, that he said, look at the Father and the Son are eternally Father and Son, so the relationship begat or begotten is a simple one. It's not uh, qualified by temporal or spatial uh, categories as befits material creatures like us, right? So simplicity should be regarded as a rule, not an insight, but a rule. We're talking about the creator of everything that's not God. We're talking about the creator-creature distinction. So whenever we talk about the creator, we always have to remind ourselves with God, it is we use this temporal spatial language in a qualified way to reflect the ontological uniqueness, the singularity of the one who is the creator of all that's not God. So I think just so to signal here the coming philosophical crisis that Origen and then Athanasius will deal with is that from the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Christianity inherited the absolute distinction between creator and creature. There is no middle term, either creator or creature, nothing else. But then with the um, advent of the Logos in our midst in human form and all the questions regarding who and what Jesus was, there arises this possibility, especially in a Greek world where this is all taking root, is, is the Logos, is Jesus somehow an actual middle term between creator and creature? And if not, how on earth could that be? Right. And that's where Origen's great contribution, the eternal generation of the Son, on careful examination, turns out to be not so stable a solution. Now, why? Because you still have to ask the question, how is the creator related to the creation? And Origen's idea here had no role really for the Holy Spirit at all. The Holy Spirit was kind of a fifth wheel. If you say eternally Father, eternally Son, what completes the triad for Origen is actually the cosmos. The, the created Ooh. world. Uh, and this is a the typical view of the Platonic philosophy of his times. Origen teaches the eternal generation of the Son, but he also thinks, well, if God is eternally God, then God is also eternally creator. And if God is eternally creator, the creation is also eternal. Uh-oh. Yeah. So eternal generation turns out to be not so unique a status as it seems because the cosmos is also eternally there it's in some sense for origin. And in that case, you've completely violated the basic Judaic insight into the creator-creature distinction. That's right. And that's where Arius enters in. Actually, in a kind of Hebraic scripture, uh, Old Testament Bible protest against origin's fuzziness here. So Origen says, God the Father, God the Son, eternal creation. No specific place or identity for the Holy Spirit, really, uh, ontologically, whose place is taken by the eternal cosmos. And Arius steps in and says, look it, 
the creator-creature distinction is absolute. There cannot be an eternal creation, except at the expense of divinizing creation. Creation cannot bear the predicate eternal, uh, naturally or ontologically. And so Arius reasserts, this is Arius the arch-heretic, and it's important to understand that the arch-heretic Arius actually has a biblical insight, which he lifts up against uh, the fuzziness of Origen's thinking. And he says, creator or creature, either or, nothing in between. So certainly the cosmos is a creature, not the creator. So far, so good. So far, so good. But then Arius says uh, something like this. There was a time when the Logos, the divine word, the Son of God, was not, did not exist. He, he wrote this in a poem called the Thalia, which was uh, like a, a general sermon equivalent to Athanasius's on the incarnation of the word. And he said, look it, we have to maintain the creator-creature distinction. Anything that comes after God the Father must, by definition, be created out of nothing. So Christ, he might be the first and the best and the most supreme of all the creatures, the best and brightest angel of them all. But fundamentally, ontologically, he's creature, not creator. So the basic issue Arius is tackling here is that how can something come from God? And the only possibility on his plate is creation. There is no other way to come from God but to be created by God. And that's in response to Origen's fuzziness, as you that's said. That's right. Yeah, so the whole it's like in Origen, like the whole scheme of Platonic emanationism is, is kind of Christianized. God the Father uh, generates God the Son, who mediates the rationality of the cre eternally created cosmos. Right. So we should probably just clarify that the uh, the traditional kind of high religious philosophical version of ancient Greek religion is not like Zeus and Athena running around having an affairs, but it's <laughs> this idea <laughs> it's it's this idea that everything emanates from an ultimate divine unmoved source from like the top of the best material things down to the least like you know dirt and rocks right. and then there will be an ultimate ultimate return where everything comes back home again so in this scheme divinity is like a sliding scale you can go from like one percent to a hundred percent and everything in between and that's what's coming up smack against this hebraic absolute creator creature distinction right so for the greeks the word divine is a quality that you can participate in varying degrees supremely in God the Father, next best in Christ, his temporally begotten Son, and then down through the ranks of the angels, and then through the eternal ideas, and down through their manifestations and material objects, right? All that kind of thing. It's a, it's a, divinity is a quality that you can participate in in varying degrees. It's like having a tan. Like you can be more <laughs> tan or less tan. Right. You can be more divine or less divine. But whereas if you're going to follow the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, strong creator-creature distinction, you're going to say God is God and there is none like God. There is none other. 
the preaching of second Isaiah in particular comes to mind here. Or to use another an analogy, you're either pregnant or you're not. There's no in-between. So that's <laughs> how it is for the Judeo-Christian tradition. You're either God or you're not. There is no in-between. So Arius then is making a perfectly good biblical point, creator or creature, no in-between. But when he applied this to God the Son and basically uh, made the case that God the Son is the first and brightest and best of the angels, right next to God, you know, buddy-buddy, close into the Father's bosom and all that stuff, but nevertheless a creature. And then, of course, if, if God the Son is a creature, then, God, as Luther said, picking up Athanasius's thought, then he himself is in the need of a savior and cannot be the savior of anyone else. And this was really the heart of the matter. Now, some recent scholars defending Arius have said, now, wait a minute. What, what, what Arius really means is also a view of salvation. Namely, salvation is a struggle. You've you got to work at salvation. You, you can't, just can't be handed to you as a gift. You know, you've oh, got to face cheap. struggle and temptation and, and, and self-discipline. So it was fitting for the Son of God to be a creature so that he could be a model and a paradigm and an inspiration for us who are creatures. Well, of course, this doesn't really solve the problem from Athanasius's point of view, because he had, in the great persecution, witnessed all sorts of failed Christians who had failed to, to live up to their discipleship in the time of persecution. And Athanasius knew that our salvation depends most wholly on God's generosity and mercy, even for failed Christians. And the view of salvation that Arius might have been advocating was no help for people who are deeply afflicted by sin, death, and the power of the devil. Themes we'll get to later on. But it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good point here that good Trinitarian and soteriological theology is on the side of failures and is not intended as a constant rebuke to them, but as an always an invitation for help and restoration. Yeah, I think that's well said. And the, the watchword of salvation is mercy. Mercy for the those who've made a ruin of their lives, uh, which is most of us. No, which is all of us in some sense or another, I suppose. All right, so at the, what happened then was this crisis, Aryan crisis, went on till the year 325. And since 312, the Roman emperor, who was victorious in the civil wars, Constantine, legalized Christianity and put an end to the Decian persecution, and more or less affiliated with Christianity from the year 312. He actually didn't get baptized until he was on his deathbed, uh, but his wife was, the emperor's wife was a public Christian, and the persecution of Christianity was outlawed. Constantine didn't make Christianity the new religion of the Roman state. The Theodosius did that some generations later. 
but he was obviously favorable to Christianity in, in many and various ways. And can I just say here, lots of people like to, to rag on Constantine and the Constantinian establishment and how it ruined Christianity. But we should observe that this coming so close after so many years of persecution of Christians, how could the Christians then not have seen it as a godsend and a blessing? Thank goodness this is over. Uh, you know, there there were all sorts of unforeseen consequences that would come out of the new arrangements, but there's no way not to receive what happened then as providential, I think. That's a, you know, and that would be kind of my retort to Tom Driver, if I could ever talk to him again today. I would say, you know, you're very interested in social Christianity. You want a Christianity that speaks to political and social concerns. You want to see a, a genuinely Christian empire? Republic? <laughs> nation? Well, this is the dream that gathered steam in Constantine. Constantine was not simply going to recognize Christianity as a private option. Constantine and his followers wanted to Christianize the realm. So I think there's some ambiguities here in, in the way we think about these issues. Anyway, let's get back to the history here. So in 325, Constantine himself had gathered the synod to try to resolve the Arian controversy. And he was advised by a Latin theologian, a Latin-speaking theologian from the West. And the tendency of the Latin theologians was to say in a kind of unnuanced, undifferentiated way, Jesus is God, and that's what matters. Jesus is God. So we can solve this whole Arian problem. By simply saying what God the Father is, Jesus the Son is too. They're the same thing. Homoousius is the Greek term that was used, which means, translated into English, the same thing. Now in the creeds we have a little nicer, a little nicer translation of one being with the Father or something like that. Much more poetic. Yeah. And at the Council of Nicaea, this seemed at the moment to be I, the, the emperor himself has suggested these words. Here we can nip the whole controversy in the bud, restore peace to the church, and get on with the business of building a Christian empire. And so the Council of Nicaea adopted this expression, homoousius, of one being with the Father. And then the next day they woke up, and everybody woke up with a sense of horror. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Whoops, we've just abolished the difference between Jesus and the Father. If the if they're the same thing in what sense at all can they possibly be different? The doctrine of the Trinity is addressing a double-sided problem. What is the continuity and the and what is the discontinuity? What is the sameness and what is the difference? The the New Testament rarely says anything so directly as Jesus is God. It always wants to specify Jesus is the Son of God. And it rarely says that God alone is God. It says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's both a sameness and a difference in this rhetoric, gospel rhetoric of the New Testament. How do you account for both aspects? The sameness, the oneness in being, and the difference, the difference, shall I use the word that 
evolved out of the controversy, the personal difference between Jesus the Son and the God of Israel, his Father. So we can see that all that's been achieved so far is Arius has put the emphasis on the difference, and then the Nicene Council on the sameness, but they were not combining the two into some coherent way, and that's what we're looking towards in Athanasius. And that's what eventually comes with the, with the distinction between the Greek word hypostasis, uh, which we translate into modern English as person, and the Greek word ousia or ousias, uh, which is the Greek word for substance or being or essence, so which we today use the word being for. So what kind of distinction can be made between the being of something and the person of something? That would be a distinction that accounts both for the sameness and for the differences. So then what happened was uh, fortunes really turned on Athanasius, because after Constantine died, the next series of Roman empires were all sympathizers with what is called semi-Arianism. Not Arius's Arianism, but a kind of diluted Arianism. Diluted or diluted? Diluted, like watered down. Okay, watered down, right. I mean, diluted, diluted as in D-E-L-U-D-E would work too, but... <laughs> right. Well, yeah, because it was a certain self-deception. The The main figure I would point to here is a the first church historian, Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius was trained in Origen's theology. He was basically very sympathetic to Origen. So he had this kind of uh, subordinationism in his theology. God the Father is God, absolutely. Uh, Christ the Son is right up there next to God the Father, next best, and then there's the cosmos. And so how does the the kingdom of God the Father, through his replica, God the Son, become materialized in the cosmos? Answer, Eusebius of Caesarea, answer, the conversion of Constantine (laughs) and the Christianization of the Roman Empire. So Eusebius writes the first Christian history, and he tells all the stories of the martyrs as if to say, this is what they fought and died for, the Christianization of the Roman Empire. And so with his semi-Aryan theology, he had produced a political ideology which blessed Roman imperialism and identified the fulfillment of Christianity with the triumph of the Roman Empire. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, yeah. And that's where Athanasius' persistent witness to the equal deity of the Son with the Father got himself into everlasting trouble and found him exile, as you mentioned, five times in his lifetime. Well, let me bring this historical review to a quick conclusion so we can get on to talking about the practical implications of Athanasius's theology. The church fathers at this time, well, what we saw, what we see during this period of the second half of Athanasius's life is a protracted struggle in which both parties became more uh, extreme in some ways. 
On the right-wing side was Marcellus of Ancyra, who had been a disciple of Athanasius. And Marcellus argued in this wholly undifferentiated way, Jesus is simply God, and that's what we have to say. Jesus is God, end of the story. But when you pressed Marcellus, well, what do you mean? Jesus was obviously a human creature who lived on this earth. How can you say Jesus is the eternal God? And so when you pressed Marcellus, he would say, well, God is eternal. He's the self-same essence, ineffable essence up in heaven. But the full and complete manifestation of God on the earth is Jesus. So God was manifested in other ways, like in the Old Testament, and he's manifested to a lesser degree in the saints, but the perfect manifestation of God is Jesus. And people scratched their head and said, that's, that's saying that Jesus is not truly or really the Son of God. He's just temporally and apparently the Son of God. He just appears to be God. That's a heresy we've seen before. Yeah, it's called modalism. Modalism is the idea that the personal relations and distinctions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not eternally true to God, so that in Christ, sent from the Father, anointed by the Spirit, the Son wins our salvation, that these, the appearance of these three of the gospel narrative is not true to God's eternal being. In fact, Marcellus of Ancyra has to kind of de-emphasize the roles of the Father and the Spirit in order to say in a, like an exclusive way, Christ is the decisive manifestation of God. Today we might call that Christomonism or Unitarianism of the second article or something like that. So that's on the right-wing side. Marcellus of Ancyra is actually guilty of the error called modalism. That is to say that Christ only appears to be the Son of God because this is nothing but a temporal appearance of the ineffable God beyond all description. And interestingly, that's also why the Latin translation persona of the Greek hypostasis for the persons of the Trinity was so perplexing and confusing because originally persona meant mask. The literal Latin is what the sound comes through. So like you wear a mask as an actor and then the sound comes through the mask. And so it seemed that this word was actually actively teaching modalism, saying there there's this blob of God out there, and then God puts on three masks, the father mask, the son mask, and the spirit mask, depending on what role he happens to be playing on this day. But that actually is just the outward appearance. It isn't who God truly is. And that's what Athanasius is pushing back against. Right. The Sunday school illustration of the Trinity that drives me crazy because it's a perfect example of modalist, the modalist error, is when you hear Sunday school teachers tell you, well, the Trinity is like steam, water, and ice. It's all H2O, but under certain conditions it appears as ice, others as steam, others as liquid water. That's modalism. So that was the right-wing problem. Uh, the left-wing problem was that the followers of Arius were never happy, even with his attempt to make peace uh, with the Nicene Church. And they become become ever more radical, ever more consistently platonic in their theology. 
And this culminates in a figure called Eunomius, who outlives Arius. And Eunomius uh, is teaching that even to call God the Father is uh, mistaken, because God is beyond all being and description. And it's impossible to predicate anything temporal of God. The most important thing you can say about God is, I know not what. And this is part of the deep Greek philosophical tradition too, again, probably uh, responding to the silly stories of Olympic gods, that the only real theology, so to speak, is nothingness, that there is nothing that can be said totally inaccessible to our senses, comprehension, engagements. God is just way, way beyond, and that's that. And I'm afraid today there's quite a revival of theologies of divine simplicity and radically uh, negative theologies or apophatic theologies, uh, which would like to teach us that the most important thing we can say about G.O.D. is, I have no idea. And that, again, has really can have no traffic with Old Testament scripture, which has lots and lots and lots to say about what God actively does. Right. And, of course, what is theology? Well, theology, if it's not knowledge of God, it's just not anything, is it? <laughs> Big waste of time. So anyway, let's let's pack uh, finish this off here. Athanasius came to realize the ambiguity of the expression homoousius, and he was opened to theologians called the Cappadocians, Basil the Great, Gregory of N uh, Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus, friends and kin who began to work out a conceptual distinction between being and a concrete way of being, which is almost literally how you can translate the difference between usia and hypostasis. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one divine being, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each a concrete or specific way of being that one divine being. Then you want to say further that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their individual ways of being are utterly inseparable. Uh, you can't be the Father that God is without this Son. You can't be the Son who Jesus is without that Father, the God of Israel. You can't be the Holy Spirit except as the Spirit of the Father and the Son. So the three these three individual identities are mutually implicated. They live a common and reciprocal life. And there's no, there's no usia that exists apart from its actual instantiation as these three hypostases. It's not like there's this like lump of clay that's the usia of God out of which it just so happened that three figures got formed, but it could have been four or ten or one, or that there's some left over for other possibilities. But the only existing usia of God is, in fact, these three hypostases of God. Yeah, the way the Cappadocians basically say this is that the being of God, the triune God, is the mutual penetration of the three. The perichoresis is the Greek word, which means peris around, going around one another. And choresis is the, comes into English as choreography. So you have the figure of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in an intricate and inseparable dance that is eternal. That's a beautiful image. Yeah, it's a powerful image of the living God, who is the eternal trinity. So the, and Athanasius came to agree with the Cappadocian solution. And the final thing I want to say is that the Council of Constantinople, 
in the year 381, finally solved the problem and broke with the whole scheme of Platonic philosophy by displacing the cosmos as the third member of the triad. Remember how in origin I explained in, in Middle Platonism, it's the absolute God, the Logos, and then the eternal cosmos. Well, in 381, the church said, no, the eternal God, the Trinity, is completed not by the cosmos, but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third of the three, which makes their eternal circulation, makes their circulation of life eternal. So you have here the idea of an ontological or imminent or eternal trinity that is completed by the Spirit who comes from the Father upon the Son and in whom the Son returns himself uh, in love and service to the Father. So Athanasius didn't live to see his cause fulfilled this way, uh, but he was on that trajectory. That's great. So let's just wrap up the this um, doctrinal part with two things that I'd like you to comment further on. One is, maybe just this is an observation, that what this means is that the drama we see playing out on the human stage in the New Testament, and also I would argue in the Old Testament, but we'll save that for another day, is actually really what God is like. It is not a puppet show put on for our benefit or even just for our instruction, but that what is happening in the stories of the New Testament is actually the real life of God, that this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing is not just a worldly appearance, but they're the real uh, truth of who God is. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Yeah, well, that's isn't that what the New Testament actually says? Uh, let me quote the Greek of John uh, uh, 1.14, And the divine word became flesh. There's a genuine becoming attributed to the divine logos. And if you actually think more seriously about it, the creation of the world out of nothing is also a divine becoming. It's an event that takes place in the freedom, eternal freedom of God. Uh, God did not need to or have to create a cosmos. That's exactly how the doctrine of the Trinity broke from the Platonic philosophy uh, of the early, those early years. And of course, the early, I would say the early church saw right away in the Genesis creation story that there is God speaking his word as the spirit hovers over the waters so that this is already God, the full God in action. That's right. They retroactively were able to see the Trinity in the Genesis creation story. Quite right. So yes, the I think the answer to your question here is that the figures or appearances of God in the scriptural narrative are not mere appearances because God is truthful in his uh, action for our salvation which is also his self-revelation. So this is why it's so important not to preach the Trinity as a math problem. Like <laughs> the main issue is how can one be three and three be one? Oh, I have heard way too many sermons like this. But that, again, this correlates both to the reality of who God is and the way God is experienced, actually, as the New Testament stories tell us. That's right. I think in my work on the Trinity in my books, I've always tried to anchor this you know, we've talked a lot today about metaphysics, which can seem very far away from uh, uh, the story of salvation in the Bible. 
Uh, but I've always tried to show that the language of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is integral to the gospel narrative. You can't tell the gospel story apart from these figures, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you, if you are not to treat them modalistically as mere appearances, but if you want to contend that here God truthfully acts for human salvation, then you've got to go with the doctrine of the Trinity. That's great. Well, good. Since you mentioned metaphysics, that's the other thing I wanted to wrap up and we'll, we'll do a, more on the Holy Spirit's a true divinity at a future time. But I, I particularly wanted you to pick up what you talked about in Divine Complexity, your book, which is how actually these philosophical metaphysical questions or assumptions that we don't examine about what's even possible can seriously interfere with our ability to apprehend what salvation is all about. And so in the Greek world, there was just no way to get from what they thought reality was like to any comprehension of what salvation was like. And so in order to get there, Athanasius and the Cappadocians too you mentioned had to revise what it could mean to be God. So instead of this, as we talked about in an earlier episode, this protological origin, unmoved, unaltered, above it all uh, thing, unknowable thing that we just label God because we don't know what else to call it. Athanasius is putting forward a very different conception of what well, first of all, what being is, and therefore what divine being is, and therefore what it can mean for creatures who are utterly different from the creator to actually be in some kind of relationship with this God. So just take us briefly through the, the metaphysical revision that happens here. Yeah, sure. I think it's, you can put it in a drastically simplified way. Is it absolute solitude and self-satisfaction that makes God God? Or is it that philanthropia that you talked about at the beginning, that love for humanity um, that makes God God? Now, of course, you have to nuance both, both of these statements, but I th especially the second one, God is not constituted by God's love for humanity, but God's love for humanity is the fitting expression of God's eternal love as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who live, as I like to say it, eternally as the beloved community. And that's the metaphysics of the gospel, the metaphysics of the Trinity, so that God is not constituted by his love for humanity, but the eternal trinity fittingly expresses itself in the creation, redemption, and fulfillment of the creature. Yeah, and I think we, we still have, I mean, in, in Western civilization, we don't know it, but we are still basically Greeks. Like, at root, we still have these deep assumptions about reality. And I think our assumptions are still that to be truly yourself is to be truly alone and unaffected and uninvolved with any others. And the, the sort of... Um, shift to um, individualism, which was in some ways politically really important, but in other ways personally disastrous over the past hundreds of years. And I mean, that's honestly in response to human violence, but still the, it, it picked up on that deep, deep ancient conviction of our civilization that that aloneness is trueness. And what I find so deeply moving about this metaphysical revision of the gospel is that actually it's just the opposite. It's not aloneness that is true, but fellowship that is true. It's so true that God, that 
is above all, the creator of all, who's really not like us in our fallenness and weakness and fragility and all that, nevertheless, is not alone. <laughs> it's But always this uh, interpenetrating dance, as you put it, and that has so much resource and love and excess and abundance in this fellowship that can even make space for creatures. And then even more so creatures who are going to make a terrible mess of what's given to them and then can go the further step of um, joining them in their plight in order to rescue them out of it. I just find this to be such a Oh, I want reality to be like this. <laughs> I want it. I want that to be what it's like, and not the floating monads that occasionally bump into each other, but then are somehow compromised by it. Sinatra sang it for our culture. I've got to be me. Just got to be me. Well, you know, again, I would say there's a place for that when one is coping with other human beings' sin, <laughs> but that can't be the the last word in the story. You have to be you in order to be you in relationship with me and others as well. That's why, yeah, that's why the theology of reconciliation is at the heart of the Christian gospel. Salvation is finally passing through sin and judgment and repentance and reparation to a state of reconciliation. Right, which again brings us back to the insistence on history as the real thing, that there is a story and a movement and a direction, not just a, a state or a fiat, as I mentioned earlier. When we think about this practically, what's the payoff for Christian life from Athanasius's kind of theology? There's a Lutheran named Jordan Cooper who's written a book called Christification, which is, he says, a Lutheran version of uh, Athanasius's idea of theosis. Theosis means divinization. The word became human in order that humans might become divine. And the word divinization can be a little bit misleading because it can sound like you said at the beginning. It can sound like we're saying salvation is being turned into God, ceasing to be a creature and actually becoming the creator of all that is not God. Well, that's that's metaphysically impossible in any event. God's being the creator of all that is not God is not a communicable attribute. God can't <laughs> right. share that with anybody else. That's what it's not a tan. It's it's not a quality that can be participated in degrees. What we're really talking about here, especially in John, the, God, the Gospel of John's theology, is the gift of eternal life. Only God has eternal life. If creatures have eternal life, it can only be that they're given as a gift of participation in God's own eternal life. That's what we're talking about when we talk about theosis or divinization. How is this conceivable? Uh, I think you preached last Sunday on the last half of 1 Corinthians 15, am I right? That's correct. Right, this mortal must put on immortality and so forth. So I think here... Christification is the idea that this is not any kind of general merger into divinity, but actually a conform, confirmation, being conformed to Christ, uh, spiritually dying in Christ uh, to sin and its wages death, uh, in order to be raised with Christ uh, to newness of life now and forever. Uh, so I think Christification is a more accurate way of expressing the notion uh, of, of divinization, uh, which avoids some of those pitfalls. Yeah, I like that. 
And I would say here, and well, I think we should probably wrap it up now to, to bring it back to Athanasius. As I mentioned at the beginning, he wrote this very famous biography of St. Anthony of the Desert, who's often considered the first true monastic in the Christian monastic tradition. Uh, interestingly, Anthony did not come out of, um, you know, like nothing. He wasn't a, a convert in the usual sense. He came out of a Christian community. It was actually the kind of um, lackadaisical attitude towards Christianity that Anthony was reacting to, not a not escaping from paganism. And Anthony went out into the desert and spent his whole life there, lived to be exceedingly ancient. Whole community of monks gathered around him, though he usually kind of pushed him away and said, you know, you can't live here with me. This is my mountain. Um, but Athanasius spent six years of one of his exiles with these monks in the desert, so he learned these stories firsthand. It's a great read, lots of excitement. Anthony is witty and hilarious um, and just unbelievable. But one thing that comes through again and again is that Jesus has to be truly human and truly divine, <laughs> as we've been saying all along, he has to be what God is and yet also what we are, because this is the only way that you can fight the demons. And for, for Anthony, and as Athanasius reports it for him as well, the main issue in the Christian life is fighting off the powers and principalities and the demons. Um, Anthony does talk about repentance, and he says, you know, you, you need to own up to your sins and you need to fight them. But the real thing you're fighting is this enemy of God. And the only way you're going to get there is if you know and experience and truly live that Jesus Christ is the victor, that he is the Lord of all. And as long as you know that, the demons can't touch you. And what's fascinating to me is that even though Anthony went through this extraordinary kind of testing in the desert, his his basic message is, all you need to know is that Christ is Lord, and then you're good. They just can't touch you. Just just say the name when the demons run away. They can't stand to hear the name of Jesus. This is just the real on-the-ground reality of Trinitarian theology, is that it helps you fight the demons. That's super. I like that so much, and that correlates with Paul's apocalyptic theology. And, uh, uh, you know, Luther has a similar advice, because what Satan does is accuse you of your sins and tell you, you, you failed Christian, you are unworthy of the God of grace, you have no business being in the church, get out of here, you don't belong here. And so Luther says when Satan attacks the Christian this way, right to the quick with the half-truth that I am a sinner and unworthy, uh, the Christian is to reply, ah, your quarrel is not with me, but with my Lord, who has taken away my sins and clothed me with his own righteousness. So leave me be Satan and go fight with Jesus. <laughs> Amen. Great. I, I mentioned this Jordan Cooper earlier, and I found this quote from C.F.W. Walther, the 19th century German-American theologian, from a sermon of his that I think kind of expresses this whole idea of divinization, theosis, Christification. And this is Walther writing, Christ not only wants to forgive all their sins, but also to free them from their sins. He not only wants to declare them righteous by grace, but he also wants to make them truly righteous. He not only came to comfort and soothe their hearts, but also to cleanse and sanctify them. He came not only to reconcile them with God, but to reunite them with God, not only to make them acceptable to God, 
but to make them like God. In short, he came to restore the entire lost image of God in them. He came to lead them back into the state of innocence, to make them perfectly healthy in body and soul, and thus finally to bring them to the blessed goal for which God destined them from eternity and called them into existence, end quote. Wow, from a Lutheran theologian. I'm impressed. All right, well, that is good dramatic foreshadowing for our next episode, which will be on justification by faith, as I like to think of it, the best thing in the worst words. Stay (laughs) tuned. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.